From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode number 45. Today's show is brought to you by Squarespace, Build It Beautiful, Stamps.com, Postage on Demand, and the New Mexico Tea Company, making excellent teas available to people all around the world. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined, as always, by your host of mine, Mr. Jason Snell. Hello, Mike. How's it going? I'm very well, sir. How are you? It's Monday. Start of a new Good. week. Upgrade time. It's Monday. It is. It, it is like... Uh... This is just how we start our start our week. Although you have you live an entire Monday before you get to this point. Yeah, seven p.m. in the evening right now. It's it's Monday morning, so it's really the the kickoff. I, I can do some some basic stuff at the beginning, but this is this is really the big kickoff of my uh, of my week right here. Yep, we uh, I guess that's what the relay and relay is for. So I begin to end my day. You start your day. That's how it works. That's how we do Interesting. this. Interesting. I thought I thought you meant that this is just the first leg in a marathon. A relay of podcasts that last the entire week all the way all the way through how about that that too monday to friday worldwide really one. yeah sure <laughs> switch on that's all i know <laughs> should we do some follow-up uh yeah that's a good idea so paul paul wrote in um because if you remember last week jason you were uh bemoaning the fact that on apple music you cannot shuffle a whole shuffle an artist, artist. Right. And I had several people say, well, sure you can. You just add all of their music to your music library and then shuffle it. It's like, that's not what I meant. No. <laughs> you meant as a, you take one artist and then you just shuffle all their music, right, is the idea. Yeah. Yeah, I find a random artist that I kind of am interested in and say, all right, just play me, a, you know, shuffle everything. And, uh, you know, you can choose if there's a curated playlist, you can do that. But otherwise, you need to add it to your library in order to do it. But Paul had a little nuance that we hadn't uh, mentioned, which I liked. So basically, uh, what Paul has said that when you have these uh, artists, um, I don't know if it's in your library or not. I think this is even in your library. If you have two albums or less, you have an option to shuffle everything. But if you have more than two, then you cannot shuffle. There is no shuffle option. (laughs) Does it make any sense? (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I, I... I will grant you that a lot of these artists, it, the catalogs are messy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are. I was talking to Dan Morin about this earlier. We had a little uh, Skype chat that uh, a podcast almost broke out, but we stopped it in time. Um, I was like, I'm going to say that for the for, for the other podcast. But we were talking about this. Everybody uses music differently. Um, there, it's such a complicated thing that it is true that I think that Apple Music feels like it's. Um, a work in progress, but it's also let's give them some credit. This is a very difficult thing to get right, and they're they're starting from not from scratch, for, but from like a year of beats music development. But um, one of the one of the problems here is you see an artist and you say, "Well, I would like to just sort of sh- shuffle through their their work." Um, there's like live stuff and singles, and there's all this junk in there that's probably not canonical. Like you wouldn't want it in the shuffle. Um, ideally. And so that's a problem. How do you do that? And, you know, I, I think basically if they've, if they've covered it with playlists, then you're pretty good that you could just listen to the, you know, the, the uh, intro to whatever playlist, and that would be a good way to get started with an artist, but they're not always available. And, uh, you know, so I I don't know, maybe, maybe they need to, I I like the idea of sort of saying here, here are all of their studio albums. (laughs) Would you like to listen to all of this or add all of these or something like that? Because yeah. right now it is kind of messy because c- you'll get all this extra, you know, iTunes sessions and 
other stuff like that that's thrown in and single versions that are just the same song that's over there but it's over here and you know what which makes sense if you're buying music but not if you're uh, if you're just subscribing or an album's deluxe edition oh yeah i see that a lot the deluxe edition yeah beach used to do a good thing with this where um, I, I haven't looked for this on Apple Music, so I don't know if it does it. When you'd see an album, and then it would have a little drop down that said one other version or whatever, and it would show if there was the deluxe edition or limited edition or re edition or whatever, or yeah. maybe uh, like a remaster, you could select and it would, you could pre- press the drop down, it would select and you could choose which one you wanted to listen to. Quite like hmm. that. Kept kept the view a bit cleaner. I, I was do I did a search this weekend for. Um... David Bowie for uh, uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, because there's a uh, there's a, in one of the four episodes of The Incomparable that I dropped last week. There's a sing along at the end to a couple of songs from that album, and I wanted to listen to the originals, perhaps to clear the sing along out of my head. And I discovered that indeed there was the 30th anniversary edition or whatever, and then there was also the um, the original. And it's just, you know, it's just kind of messy. I think one of them was just, you know, the main album and one of them is the main album plus a bunch of bonus material. But, you know, it's just kind of messy that it's not, you know, this is one of the challenges with these catalogs is sometimes there's just a whole lot of junk. And then when you have access to all of it, um, it gets it gets more complicated. That was on episode 255B of The Incomparable. Yes, it was. You're killing me, you know. You are killing me right now. We released 255A, B, C, and D. (laughs) Last week. How many more uh, are there? No, that's, well, that's it for 255. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess this is a follow-out. I'll just mention it. We did this thing called the uh, Summer Superhero Spectacular where for Comic-Con, because last week was Comic-Con. We're going to talk about that later. Four days of Comic-Con, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And we, we um, had this stupid idea to do a superhero tournament uh, with four regions, 64 uh, not teams, 64 heroes, and have completely arbitrary judgments about who the, you know, which hero was going to move forward, who the more awesome hero was. And um, I had no idea, and it went, went for like two and a half hours. It, it, I, and I had no idea how we were going to release it when we recorded. And I thought, you know, Comic-Con's coming up. What about releasing one of those four regions um, every day for the run of Comic-Con? So we did that, A, B, C, D. And... Um, and the the story is that halfway through, um, my uh, I've got the uh, Retina iMac on a on an arm, and um, if af- over time, if I'm not careful, the power cord gets more taut as I as I kind of move the the arm up and down and tilt it and stuff like that. It gets sort of like it keeps sliding down the back of the desk. So when we're about halfway done, I I was we we'd been going for a while. I decided to reposition my iMac and the power cord popped out the mm. back. So one, I lost my recording and we weren't streaming it live, so I had no backup. So the first two episodes are a Skype track from someone else of me because my my microphone track wasn't recorded. So that was bad. I didn't notice that by the way. The Skype track dropped. Um, the, the, or the Skype connection dropped entirely. So I have, I have some of the people on were recording using Skype, but some of them just had a recording going in the background. And so I ended up with, once we pieced everything together, we got back on the call, we did the other two regions, we, you know, we finished this three-hour-long marathon session. Um, when, I put the call, when I put the thing in Logic to edit it, there is all of this sound from when people's call had dropped. <laughs> Of them going, oh, geez, the call dropped, stupid Skype. You know, they say things. And then and then as the call picks back up, then everybody kind of comes back. Um, and we had just uh, talked about, uh, it's a long story, but we, you know, we, we talked about uh, a, a character named uh, Starman 
and they had begun to sing Starman by David Bowie. And so when, um, when uh, the call dropped, uh, Steve Lutz and Phil Michaels just sort of kept singing David Bowie. And as they came back together, it sort of turned into a duet. And so that's at the end of episode B. But but it was literally, we were just, the reason it happened is that we people were killing time because uh, everything was ruined uh, by that's my... That's how uh, that happened. I thought they were singing together. Well, they, they, they were, so they were singing, they were singing together and then they were singing separately and then they were singing together again when the call came back. So, so he'd sort of, the call dropped and I cut some stuff out in the middle, but, um, the call dropped and then Steve just sort of started singing on his own as the call came back. And then at some point Phil, Phil rejoined, heard Steve singing and then he began to sing and it made me laugh. Every time I hear it, it makes me laugh. Um, but anyway, that was why I was looking up uh, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, because I only vaguely, I never owned that album, and I only vaguely know those songs, and that was a great use of Apple Music, actually, once I picked which edition I wanted. And uh, so, so yeah, so there's there's a little follow-out, um, a little podcast story, and a little Apple Music all rolled together in, in one. Okay, so Elton John's Rocket Hour, I wanted to just let people know that I listened yeah. to it and loved it. Yep. Um, that was that was good. That that happened right. That happened right uh, after our show last yep. last week, right? Yeah, I caught the rebroadcast on Tuesday, right? And I heard it Monday night when you were sleeping, mm-hmm. um, while we were driving back from L.A. And I, I it gave me everything that I thought it was going to, and and everything I wanted. Like it highlighted Elton's varied music tastes. Also, they yeah. shared some great stories as well. Um, and now I have a calendar entry for 2 p.m. every Tuesday to remind me to listen in. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I, I think I've heard um, a bunch of podcasts talking about, like I was listening to ATP talk about um, the tyranny of radio and all that, which I kind of agree with. But I, I was really happy how we described it last last week that um, this is... Uh, you know, if, if the point of beats one is not just to play some music, right. It's supposed to have like, it's, it, these are like shows. They're, they're like entertainment shows. They're, they're about the personalities involved. And if you're listening just to hear pristine, like just a song and then another song, and then maybe a voice comes in and says, that was the name of that song. And that's not, that's not the point, you, you know, that, and that's what radio used to be. And I think that's not the point of beats one. Um, so having Elton John do that, I, I, um, I follow Beats One on Twitter now, and I was um, Lauren was working uh, an evening shift, and I was done editing or recording a podcast, something like that. And I saw this tweet about uh, a new show starting on on Beats One. It was uh, it was Ellie Goulding, the pop star, and I started playing that, and uh, while I was making dinner, and uh, that was really a lot of fun. I mean, she's a pop star, but she was playing like electronica in one show. And then the show I listened to, it like got into alternative and then heavy metal after a while. Um, and you know that, that I didn't like everything that I heard, but it was just a lot of fun to do that. And I, I listened while I was making dinner. And, and, uh, I think that that's the interesting thing about, about beats one. And then you can go back and there's a playlist. So I was able to find the, the songs that I really liked and add those and listen and explore those artists. Yeah, you can just search their names. They come up as a curator, and you can find the playlists attached. So yeah, yeah, no, that do. was a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun, and and uh, the 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 rock show got harder as it went, and uh, I it sort of verged out of what I liked after a while. But there were some tracks, especially early on, that I really liked, and now I'm going back and listening to her playlist of her previous show. But I'll check that out, and I love that's actually one of the things I really like. The St. Vincent's mi- mixtape delivery is the same thing. Finding these people who are not just musicians, but are um, 
are people who love music and having them uh, present music that they like to you in you know and an hour a week. It's not it's just a slice of their their you know worldview of music. These people who are whether it's Elton John or it's somebody like Saint Vincent or Ellie Goulding, uh, that's really interesting. And again, it is you know it's not something that I would listen to just in the background. Uh, because I don't, I don't listen to music that way. But when I'm in a, a place where I kind of want to listen to something, you know, or I want to make time to listen to something that I think is going to be an interesting journey that I, yeah, I'm paying attention to, then uh, that really works for me. So you had some uh, follow out for ATP. Yeah, I just wanted to mention. I mean, it's funny that we follow out to ATP because you know they they have <laughs> many more listeners than we do. Well, uh, and, you know. Uh, and I love, I love that podcast and listen to it every week. And I, I had to listen, I got behind, they lapped me. I had to listen to two ATPs, but I was doing a lot of housework this weekend. So it was not a problem. I was back to listening to John Syracuse while mowing my lawn, like in the classic hypercritical days, but with bonus, uh, Casey and Marco. Um, it was just, I wanted to mention it because we talked about the, uh, Safari is the new IE thing last week. And in ATP 125, they talked about it. Um, I found, uh, it's one of those things where they, they, it was like a, um, reconcilable differences, so to speak, uh, between Marco and John, where uh, you know Marco would say one thing and John would say another thing, and I agreed with both of them, and I'm not sure they felt like they were agreeing or disagreeing. Um, I did, I did have one note. John talked for a while about how like the open web is good, and 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 um, it's in everybody's best interest that the open web continue to grow, and I agree with that. Um, but at the same time, I had a moment of of, uh, of of slight disagreement with Mr. Syracuse because I feel like what what got unsaid there was this idea that the dream of creating mobile apps using web technologies so that, that uh, if you can't or won't build native apps, but you can still be on Android and iOS, that's a nice dream. And I can see why why you would say, well, that's that's good that there's something that not everybody controls that people can use to build these things. But... For me, I just get flashbacks to the Java era where people told us um, you're going to be able to write once and run it everywhere. And the fact was that stuff was really bad. <laughs> it was mediocre at best. And it was it was not tied to a particular platform. And that was actually bad because when when stuff isn't tied to a particular platform, it's generic. It doesn't feel like your native stuff. And um, I'm not sure that that, you know, yes, an open web is good for users. But uh, if it leads in that direction, then... Um, if it leads in that direction, I'm not sure it leads to some place that creates products that are good for the user experience. And um, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I get John's point and I agree with it that uh, the last thing you want is everything to be completely controlled by platform vendors and that there's no other way into these devices other than by building native apps. Um, but I, I you know, I, I think that people are not talking enough when they talk about this issue about the fact that one size fits all multi-platform apps, even if we believe Lauren Brichter that, you know, you can build something that's going to be super um, awesome 60 frames per second response. You know, it's not going to be slow. It's it, it's going to be able to do what native apps do on in that way. I still am not convinced that they aren't going to look weird and be weird and um, and also lag behind technologically because they'll all be based on something that comes through a standards body, whereas Apple can hold a WWDC and say, here are some new APIs, ships in the fall, and the apps will take advantage of it. They can't do that with the web technologies. So 
anyway, but uh, but otherwise, I thought it was a really great discussion. Uh, Marco is definitely uh, on the same wave, wavelength that I am on this, but uh, I thought John's points were really great as a web developer. Um, and Casey's nice too, but he didn't have as much to say on that episode. So there you go. And uh, just before we jump into our topics today, there was just one thing that I wanted uh, to bring up. Uh, Satoru Iwata, who was the CEO of Nintendo of America and the president of Nintendo, uh, passed away last night. And uh, that is an incredible loss um, to technology and video gaming. Uh, Iwata was an incredible man and he did amazing things. And the people that are interested in video games um, to the level that I am and some other people on Relay are... um, this isn't akin. This is a lot akin to Steve Jobs. Um, they had they died around the same sort of age. Uh, Iwata was fifty five, and he was someone who was a real visionary. Um, you know, the Nintendo might not be doing as well right now, but potentially they're on the upswing. They're making some big changes in their company. But um, Iwata's time at Nintendo saw both the Nintendo DS and the Wii U. Some of the biggest selling games consoles of all time um during his time was responsible for both of them and he was a man who had incredible technical achievements as well he was a developer and even as a ceo was contributing code uh and ceo and president was amazing uh sorry the Wii, not the i said the wii u but i meant to say the Wii. the Wii, yeah Yeah. the original (laughs) marketing problems uh he was contributing code as a president and there's this just a bunch of great stories on the internet right now so um, I'll include a, a couple of links in the show notes if you want to read a bit more find out a bit more about him uh, but I just wanted to mention it today because I think that it is an incredibly important story in technology um, and felt I'd go amiss about mentioning it yeah glad you mentioned it it's very sad. I imagine you'll talk I'll imagine you'll talk uh, more about that maybe on another program later yeah. this week yeah, we'll be talking about it on virtual, um, and I expect yeah. that the isometric gang will be discussing it as well. So I would imagine a couple of shows there on relay you can go to, and um, our shows this week I'm sure will be will be uh, completely dedicated um, to to Iwata and his, his life. So it's very sad, very sad. So we should take a break. Uh, let's yep. thank our first sponsor this week, and then we can start talking about some uh, public beta-related issues uh, that we want to talk about today, and good stuff too. I'm thrilled to welcome back the New Mexico Tea Company for sponsoring this week's episode. We've had them sponsor a couple of weeks ago. The New Mexico Tea Company has been sourcing fantastic loose-leaf tea from all over the world, and they can deliver it to you. They discover and import great teas, but they also make some on them their own. They make some great teas themselves as well. They are focused on making excellent teas available to people all around the world. They have a great store. When they can do this, you can go and buy whatever you want. And I've heard a bunch of you have been trying out some of the teas that we mentioned. I heard from David at the New Mexico Tea Company. But what I wanted to to talk to you a little bit today is I really wanted to mention their tea of the month club and I brought it up last time but this is such a fantastic deal basically for $19.99 a month you get three different teas and they're going to last you around 50 cups and it's a really fantastic thing to try out because you'll be receiving not only teas that are kind of like that you will be your normal type of thing you know you can choose if you want to receive pure tea or herbal tea but you're also going to get some interesting new stuff to try so you know everyone can go to a store and buy the things that they're used to but you want to find out new stuff right you want to get new tastes and things like that and this is what the tea of the month club at the new mexico tea company can give you you'll be subscribing and you'll have 
excellent tea at home always, but you'll be also broadening your horizons, trying some new high-grade specialty teas and really kind of going out there and trying some new stuff. So, you know, I mentioned that the New Mexico Tea Company had sent me a box of stuff to try out, and there was stuff in there that I was familiar with, but now my favorite teas that, that they have in this box is stuff that I never would have tried on my own. Like huh. that, so it's like you know they're they're like more maybe like fruity. Um, there's this one I'm trying to find the name of it now. Jason, why don't you talk about it and then I'll grab the tea that I've been trying this week and I can explain to people what I like about it. All right. Well, today I had for the first time the Royal Yunnan, which is a uh, rich and malty Chinese organic black tea. I put some milk in it because the malty the malty teas I like with milk. Um, and uh, it was really nice. And I, this goes with the, again, I've had the Earl Grey, I've had the the uh, Canadian breakfast and the English breakfast, and uh, uh, we had their green tea. I've had their uh, th- one of their fruity teas that actually is a summer tea that they recommend you make iced tea with, so I did that. Um, lots of different, the variety is amazing, and uh, and I like how the, the way they've set up the Tea of the Month Club is, the idea is you drink a cup of tea, a day and two two on the weekends, <laughs> um, and that that is how much tea you get every month from them. And I like the idea of of um, of having some surprises, some surprise and delight in the in the box is a smart idea too. So there's two teas that I've been trying and enjoying, and these are things I never would have tried on my own. One is called Lucky Summer, um, which is rebos. That's the one. Rebos. That's the one that I made iced tea out of. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah, I love it. Yeah. I drink it hot as well. Uh, it's how do you say this? Rubois? I don't know. Uh, I but don't it has even that. Know. Uh, peach. Uh, it has peach, different types of fruit, lemongrass, spearmint, and peppermint, which is a really weird mix when you put it on paper, but tastes incredible. And pondy cherry, which is cherry berries, uh, rose hips, uh, hibiscus, mm-hmm. and some other natural flavorings as well. And these yeah, are things that I never hib- would have tried that, on my so own. That one I can tell you is hibiscus. It's a, I, I like saying it like that. Someone said it to me that hibis- way before, and I can't stop saying it. I think it was in Starbucks because they were doing this like hibiscus thing before, and the lady hibiscus. called it hibiscus, and it's just become like a hibiscus. joke between it me is, and a friend, and now not, I can't it, help but say it. It is not Greek. Greek. Uh, it is, um, and uh, I think it's rubus, 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 something like that. Embos. It's it's pronounced hibiscus, Mike. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so like, you know, this is just an example of some of the incredible stuff that you can get, you know, because you're going to get these really interesting and new things to try out and you're never going to know the type of thing that you're going to fall in love with. And you always get memberships, always get free shipping and you can cancel them at any time, but that's great, right? It's 20 bucks a month, basically, and you can get free shipping. Uh, Or if you have two people in the household, you can double the tea for $29.99, so you get a saving on that too. If you use the code UPGRADE at checkout, you'll get 25% off your first three months of your tier the month club uh, bringing the price down to 14.99 but if you want to just buy some stuff uh, in the store you'll also get free shipping with that too but remember with the tier the month club you always get free shipping uh, they really have a great variety of teas so go and check them out at the nmt so nmteaco.com so nmteaco.com slash upgrade and i'm sure that you're going to find something that you like go support us by supporting them. Go check out the New Mexico Tea Company. Thanks so much. Yay. Tea. Right, so uh, public beta time, huh? Yeah, uh, tis the season for public betas. So many public betas. 
last week we got the El Capitan public beta and the iOS 9 public beta, which came right like I think a day or two um, after the presumably the same build more or less got uh, seeded to developers. So, so now for the first time, uh, people with iOS devices can publicly, you know, can beta test just by signing up for the public beta, can can use a beta of the next version of iOS. Last year, we did this for macOS, but it wasn't until I think early this year that iOS public beta started. So uh, it, the world can be as dangerous as you want it to be. <laughs> and you've been trying them out, right? Uh, yeah, so I've got uh, I I've got iOS nine on an iPad Air two that I got specifically for iOS nine testing, and then um, I did put the public beta on my iPhone, which I a little hesitant to do, and I would mm. not I would not do it under normal circumstances, but I've got to write about this stuff, so I've got to live with it. Um, and I have a I have a laptop here with El Capitan on it, and I haven't put it on my Mac yet. Although I probably will do this that this week, just because I think I've got to live with it. Even though it's gonna, you know, this is the problem with this is like this is my, um, you know, production Mac here. I record podcasts, I edit podcasts on it, and I write on it. Um, so I think I'm just gonna kind of cross my fingers and know that I've got my laptop, uh, my MacBook Air. If I if there's something that I just can't do. During the on this current public beta build, I'll have to switch to the laptop to do that part and then come back. But um, that's because I, you know, that, that's because I do this for a living, right? I write, I write about this and talk about this stuff, so I have to I have to use it. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think I would recommend that anybody, especially iOS, like don't put this on your phone unless you really, 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 really are prepared for it causing pain because you're going to get weird bugs and things crashing and that's just how it is like developers can't even release their um, apps if they're built against iOS 9 uh, to the app store or put on test flight if you're a beta tester for some apps they can't, I believe they can't even do that yet so no, um and so so what ends up happening is people write app reviews and say this app sucks because it doesn't work right on iOS 9 public beta which is really about as unfair as it gets because they in in many cases they can't they're things they can't do um not only that but of course it's not fair to ask developers to be uh to have their apps be functional on beta software because it can't be in some instances i mean there are some crashes yeah. i guess that people can fix but some stuff is going to break and you might not be able to fix it. And yep. I don't even know if you can submit. I mean, you can submit some fixes, I think, but it's diff- it can get a bit sort of sketchy as to what you can kind of fix when on the previous version. Um, Federico wrote a nice little piece about this. He kind of like, it broke down the problems and yep. what Apple tries to do, but then makes some suggestions uh, for what Apple should do. If you're a beta tester and you want to be helpful, you could contact the the developer of your favorite app that doesn't work quite right in iOS 9 and say, hey, I'm using the iOS 9 public beta. Um, you probably are aware that, it, that your app doesn't work, you know, doesn't do this, doesn't work right in this way. Um, if you are looking for people to, to test your app, I would be happy to do that because I love your app and I'm on the public beta. They, they can say no. <laughs> they may say no. They probably will say no. But you could do that if you wanted to. That wouldn't be unreasonable. They, and they might, you know, they might like another tester. And they might not. But you also have to be prepared to the fact that things are not going to work until, until another build of iOS 9 or until iOS 9 comes out. And this is why I think you should really hesitate before installing a public beta, especially of iOS 9 on your iPhone. Because your iPhone is so 
important to you. All of our iPhones, super important to us. And, uh, you know, like my iPad is important to me, but it's less like crucial because I'm usually using it in the house and there are other devices around. My iPhone, I'm using it out and about. And if I, if it breaks, I just am out of luck, which is not fun. And my Mac, I feel like the Mac, you can work around problems because it's a Mac and there's many more ways to do things on a Mac than there is on an iOS device. So I, I just go in with a lot of caution, especially iOS. iOS betas are weird and, and, um, and the apps will crash and, and app developers can't really fix a lot of those problems right now. And, you know, just warning, warning sign, flashing warning sign. Um, there was something that I wanted to mention about uh, the app review part, like people leaving app reviews. Because when yeah. I see people talking about this on Twitter or whatever, like you, you always see people that kind of like lash out and be like, oh, that person's an idiot. Those people shouldn't know how to use computers, that kind of thing. And I think that that's unfair um, because I think that the thing about this is we all install the betas because we're interested in what's coming next, right? Um, but there are lots of nerdy people out there who feel exactly the same, right? They want to, But they're not necessarily as in tune with the independent developer community. Like those those two Venn diagrams, they don't, they don't completely overlap. Like I think there are people that are nerdy who like kind of gadgets and tinkering and stuff. They read Apple blog, like Apple websites and stuff, but they don't like follow indie app developers on Twitter. Uh, so they're not necessarily like I, I don't think that people necessarily know the effect that this stuff can happen or know that this isn't a good way to submit feedback or whatever, or even know that apps should or shouldn't be updated to to fix these problems, right? Like, I don't know if people necessarily know that, like, an app developer can't update their app for iOS 9 stuff. Um, so I, I find it a bit strange when people, like, lash out against these people. I don't think it's their problem or their fault. Like, because as well, like, you know, oh, you should read the things that it says on Apple's website. Who does? I didn't know it said anything about it on Apple's website when I downloaded the El Capitan public beta. I didn't right. read it. I just downloaded it, right? Because I know best. So I think that I think really this is Apple's problem to solve, like, and not just to put some a line in some documentation. If it is really a problem, then they should look into it, and and it probably is an issue because I expect that it is affecting some developers. You know, it might have like perfect five star ratings, and then they get some one star ratings because of this, and then you kind of look at somebody's uh, overall development stuff, and you see the average start to go down, and you might question whether you want to buy the app. So it probably does make an effect, but personally, I think that this is something that Apple need to do more about, and and I actually don't think that it's in education because I don't think you can do that. I think they need to they need to prevent people from doing this and in my, yeah, oh, my, I agree. Own, my own personal opinion on this and I know why some people don't like this idea but I think that anybody that um, signs up for the beta uh, should have reviews turned off at their Apple ID yeah or or only or only be visible for people running the public beta <laughs> yeah like in their in a sandbox or something I I agree with you I mean put yourself in the mind of a developer here you are you are probably let's say you're updating your app for iOS 9 you are kicking hard for the release of iOS 9 in the fall. That is what you're targeting. And so the public beta comes out and you hear from people who are like, oh, it, your current version doesn't doesn't work in the public beta. And you're like, okay, well, I'm working on a new version. I can't, you know, I can't release it to the app store right now. Um, and, and what a terrible 
position to be put in as a developer of trying to fix bugs for the public beta users instead of just working on the big picture of getting that final version done for the final version of iOS 9. And that's what developers, some developers are in that position right now where they're like, do I fix this so that it runs for the people? On, and, and it's for themselves too, right? Because they're probably running development versions of, of, of uh, iOS 9 as well. But, you know, priorities here. I, I think their priority should be the finish line, not this, you know, starting the starting of the public beta. That's That's dumb. So yeah, it's uh it's too bad because you know, you need to know what the rules are for being a beta tester and complaining that there are bugs and that third-party apps don't always work right. You know, you're there the purpose of the public beta is for people to give feedback to Apple and third-party developers about things that aren't working right and it's not just to make people who uh, are really excited about living in the future, a chance to live in the future for a couple of months. So I also encourage you, if you do use any of these public betas, use the feedback assistant and give Apple feedback because they are actually listening and learning. And we saw last summer uh, some changes made in Yosemite based on feedback. So they are they are totally listening. I, I can tell you that. They're not just listening to anonymous crash data, which you can say to provide to Apple where they can count what the crashes are and things like that. But they're listening to feedback. They listen to the radar uh, bug reporter feedback from developers, but they listen to the feedback assistant stuff from users as well. And, uh, and so if you're going to go down this path, definitely... Um, give feedback about things you find that don't work right. But writing, you know, not writing nasty app reviews. Instead, give feedback in the feedback assistant so that Apple can fix the problems for the general public release, which doesn't come until whatever, September, probably. So I don't have an awful lot to say about El Capitan. Um, I put it on my MacBook Pro a couple of days ago, um, which is not the machine that I use to record. I wouldn't do that. Right, smart. Um, but it's the, the machine that I use every day, but I was confident putting it on there because it was just like, you know, what, what's the worst that could happen? Um, yeah. But I have another Mac, like if everything exploded, I could start over again. Right, um, right. And I've been I've been pretty happy with it. I've, you know, I very much like looking at San Francisco um, on this uh, on this machine as, as well as I like looking new, at my iPad as well. The new system font. The new yeah. system font. Um, I think it's very good looking, um, and I th- and I wished that more apps that I had used the system font as their font choice, right? So I so they would update. Some of my apps do, like uh, I think, yeah, OmniFocus. I think yeah, it's using San Francisco, um, but like you know, Tweetbot isn't. Like I would like to see more San Francisco. You know, I think it's a very very nice font. Um, I like looking at it. Nice if I could if I could choose it or something. Anyway. Um, so that's cool. Uh, I like the split screen stuff. Uh, I use full screen a lot. Um, I have my web browser in full screen. It's the way that I like to work. Uh, hmm. And today I was doing some show follow up and, and prep whilst using two browser windows side by side in full screen. And I really like that. That's a great way for me to work rather than going from tab to tab or having to swipe from screen to screen, which is what I usually have to do. So having the two... Uh, Browser windows side by side is is great, and yes, I know I could just put them on a desktop and resize them, but I it's not doesn't work for me that way. I like doing it in full screen. I like that app that the uh, I like that it snaps in immediately side by side, and that you know the websites take it, it just all works, and I don't have to worry about it. And I'm finding mission control and spaces to be way more responsive. 
And I like the way that you can just drag things from uh, desktop to desktop really easily. Like from, you can drag it from the desktop onto a full screen window. Then that makes it a uh, like a split screen window and you can drag it away again. Um, it's really easy to make something full screen by just dragging it up into the uh, mission control bar, like way, like a lot easier than before. I really like it. I mean, because I am one of the people that uses all those features um, on a daily basis. I use all the gestures and stuff like that. And I found it to be way better. Uh, the big mouse thing is annoying me. Wow. Because Can you turn it off? I, th- I haven't tried. Uh, I'm trying mm. to just live with it to see if I get used to looking for it. But like at the moment, the only time I ever see it is by accident. So like <laughs> I just move my mouse and it yeah. goes, I'm like, what are you doing? Uh, I haven't seen yeah, it not good. currently. In, like I'm looking in the mouse settings and it isn't there. I'm sure you can turn mm. it off. But I want to leave it on for a bit to see if I get used to shaking my mouse to find it. But I mean, I'm only using a 13-inch display. Like it's not. Right. You know, I'm not having a hilariously difficult time trying to find my mouse at the best of times. Yeah. But. I actually do have to find the cursor a lot on the yeah. on the iMac. So not bragging or anything, but it's a really big screen. So um, uh, I've got nothing I, to uh, compensate for, Jason. One one, th- one thing I wanted to mention is um, something I found when I was uh, and I wrote I wrote up a, a thing on Six Colors and another thing on MacWorld about the about the El Capitan public beta. Um, I wrote a couple thousand words on MacWorld about it. Um, the problem that what what I'm finding, and again, it's beta, so there's time, is apps have been written for full screen mode uh, because up to now, full screen mode meant that app was the only thing that was there, right? It was active. It was the only app you could see. Now, what split screen mode is, is basically a variation on full screen mode. It's essentially full screen mode with two apps sharing the screen. And... It's going to be interesting to see how app developers, including Apple, have to revise how they approach uh, full screen mode. And it's also, I, I think, maybe some questions I have for Apple about their approach to full screen mode. I say this because I was using Preview to write my story, actually. I was using Preview with a PDF of the reviewer's guide and, uh, and I think the, the Notes app to take notes. And there, so they were they were side by side in in split screen mode, and I would move over, I would move my cursor over to the PDF and try to use the finger spread, you know, command to uh, make it bigger, and uh, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Now, in the regular mode, if you've got p- preview in the background and uh, another app in the foreground, and you do that, that's the behavior is it doesn't do anything because it's not it's not foregrounded. But in the split screen mode, I I sort of feel like both apps are frontmost in a way. And I think the apps think that too, because the apps think like preview doesn't change when <sighs> let me let me back up. So you've got two apps running side by side in, in split screen mode. Um this is now for the first time in full screen mode, one app is foremost, foregrounded, and the other one is not. And in fact, it, the one that you've clicked in. If you move your cursor to the top of the screen, that's the one that shows in the menu bar. And if you click on the other one, then that one shows in the menu bar. So now there's this concept in full screen mode of which is the frontmost app. And an and app that's not frontmost behaves differently. And some apps in their full screen mode don't even show you whether they're frontmost or not because they assume they are. So like preview looks like preview in split screen mode, whether it's selected or not, because 
what other app could be showing. Possibly. It's in full screen mode, except now it's not. Now it's in split screen mode. And so I, I have those moments where I think to myself, um, something's got to give here. Either either Apple needs to change the behavior in split screen mode to do something, maybe even something like what they do in Unix, where you know the focus changes when your cursor moves over the other app. Like when my when my cursor moves over preview, preview acts like it's front frontmost, and I can zoom in and stuff without clicking. Because right now you have to click, and then you click on it, and nothing seems to happen. But it's come to the front, but you wouldn't know. And then you can zoom around um, to your heart's content. Um, you zoom in, zoom out, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then if you and then if you start typing. Uh, it you know the notes doesn't type anymore because you're not in notes anymore you're in preview but you can't you know you can't even look at the menu bar to tell which one's frontmost because the menu bar is hidden so I feel like again and and, and it's a beta so the question is does this stuff get resolved now <laughs> or does it get resolved does it not get resolved and this becomes a, a flaw in this concept for uh, when El Capitan launches we'll see. We'll see, but that was one of the first things that struck me is like these apps don't quite know whether they're um, whether they're alone or not, and and don't signify things that you know it it doesn't make sense in full screen mode for you to care because you're the only app. But now they're not the only app. So uh, is Apple going to revise Preview? Are there going to be changes to full screen mode? Uh, I don't know yet. But that was the thing that struck me is that it's a little bit weird right now that apps don't behave quite right, and the metaphor is a little bit strange having two apps with the menu bar hidden um in in full screen mode because like one of the weird things is uh scrolling is possible in both no matter which one is foremost so you can scroll up and down but you can't pinch to zoom right so it's like you've got half of it there Mm -hmm. different apps have different behaviors based on whether they're in the foreground or in the background so like preview is a good example and other apps are like this where you can scroll in when it's in the background but you can't zoom um, but that gets weird because then you're in full screen mode and you're like, okay, well, some things I can do without clicking on it, but other things I need to click first and then I can do other things with it. Um, and, and with preview, it's even weirder because you're not clicking to like edit something. You're just clicking to click on something that's part of preview so that it comes to the foreground, even though it is in the foreground technically, right? Because... Well, not technically. It, it visually, it's in the foreground because there's only two apps, and they're at, they're, they're uh, spatially they're both at the top. <laughs> uh, but you still have to click on that one because it's not active, because the other one's active. See, this is it's tough stuff. This is not easy stuff. This is like the desktop metaphor, and every time you add something to it, it, it there are complications around mm-hmm. it. But that's just one of the first things that struck me about it, um, and I think it's less problematic on on iOS, although there's still some issues on iOS with the split screen view. Um, I think it's a little less problematic because you are physically interacting. Yeah. Know? Well, I, yeah, that problem doesn't exist there because whatever you're touching becomes the, the current. Exactly. So it's, there's no hovering you know, with a cursor and no. then ju- doing a gesture. But in the iOS, if, if we take the iOS model and apply it here, then absolutely when you move your cursor over it and do a pinch and zoom, it should, it should answer. You know, it should know that is what you're intending to work on. But that's not how the Mac works at all. No. You don't, you know, moving, because on, on Unix, you have this situation where you move your cursor over an app in, in some of the, the, like, X Windows kind of inter- interfaces. And forgive me, because I'm sure there are specific names of specific kinds of, uh, you know, Linux uh, GUIs in, in which this happens. But the idea is that the, the focus follows the cursor. 
And uh, for a Mac user, that's really weird that the focus follows the cursor, that when your mouse moves over that app, that app is now where the focus is. And for us, as Mac users, you click, and then the focus comes. But, um, but uh, you know, yeah, I think, that, I think that is sort of broken in the split-screen view and, and on the Mac. But on iOS, it, yeah, it makes sense because you're touching that app. So that app is going to respond. The only place where it gets a little weird is the keyboard. Um, but, you know, even there, you have to tap to get an insertion point. I mean, you, you are tapping on something and saying, this is where I want the keyboard to be. And then the keyboard comes up. So it's it's a lot clearer there because it's not mediated by um, a little cursor that you move around. Should we take a break? I think so. This week's episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Squarespace. Start booting your website today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code UPGRADE to get yourself 10% off Squarespace, build it beautiful. When it comes to finding a home for yourself on the internet, you should take my advice and go to squarespace.com because they give you everything that you need to build an incredible, great-looking website and take away all the stuff you don't want to have to worry about, like finding hosting, dealing with scaling, caching, or where do you go and what do you do if you get stuck with something or you need some help. With Squarespace, you can build a website that looks like it was professionally designed regardless of your skill level or coding, because all of their templates, all of their fantastic responsive design templates are all professionally designed, and then they have great tools that you're able to build upon, you're able to drag and drop and change things, and really make it look like your own. You can choose fonts, you can choose colors, and you can tweak the layout to look exactly the way that you want. All of their tools are super intuitive, and you can make it feel like the place you want to live with your content. Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology that they use to power your website, and they also ensure security and stability too. They're trusted by millions of people around the world, and they have some huge companies as well that use the Squarespace platform. We use it at Relay for our blog and for our uh, store as well because they're two pieces of functionality we didn't want to have to build ourselves, so we got to Squarespace because we know that they're going to do it better than we ever could. But all of this stuff, this is just getting started with what Squarespace can offer you. I said about getting stuck a moment ago. They have 24-7 support that are always on hand via live chat and email. They have teams located in New York, Dublin, and Portland, so they're there to help you anytime, day or night. They have their commerce platform. I mentioned that we use their store functionality. This allows anybody to add a store to their Squarespace site. You can sell physical and digital goods. They do inventory management for you. They can do uh, all receipts and billing stuff. They use Stripe as well, so you can integrate all of that. They can then integrate with companies like ShipStation, which is a great shipping like. Uh, shipping company they help you out with shipping rates and and that kind of stuff and printing of labels and stuff it's really really cool they have a thing called they call cover page it allows you to build really great looking single page websites that you can use they have rock solid fast hosting and just so much more they have a dev platform as well so if you want to get in under the hood and tinker with things with squarespace you can do that you can push your squarespace website further than ever before and if you sign up right now with one of their annual plans you'll also get yourself a free domain name as well squarespace plans start at just eight dollars a month and you can sign up for a free trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website today by going to squarespace.com and when you decide to sign up make sure that you use the offer code upgrade it's going to get you 10% off your first purchase and show your support for this show thank you so much to squarespace for helping us out today and for supporting us all at relay fm squarespace build it beautiful squarespace squarespace so you've put in a little topic here uh, which you're going to have to help explain to me Sure. Um, I wrote a post about it last week. 
Um, okay, so we're recording this Monday. Tomorrow morning, my time, the New Horizons spacecraft will reach Pluto, formerly a planet, now debatably a minor planet. But we, you know, when we were growing up, it was always the ninth planet, and it's still one of the major bodies in the solar system. And um, I just, I am a, I'm a space nerd. I admit it. That is one of my nerdinesses, in addition to computer nerdiness and uh, and uh, pop culture nerdiness, which we're going to get to because Comic Con also happened last week. Um, but uh, I, I wrote a post about it because I tried to cross the streams with my tech nerdiness and my space nerdiness. Um, so. The idea here is this Pluto is very, very far away. It's like 3 billion miles away. We're 93 million million miles from the sun. Pluto is 3 billion miles away. It is very, 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 very far away. So far that it takes um, about four and a half hours for light or radio waves, in this case, to travel from Earth to the spacecraft. So very far away. Um, and on tomorrow, the spacecraft will zoom past Pluto and its moons and then into, you know, further deeper into the Kuiper belt and of icy objects that sort of surround the, the uh, solar system and then out into interstellar space. Um, so I think this is interesting for a few reasons. Um, one is that I think it's a great story of delayed gratification. Um, they launched it in, in, uh, in 2006. Um, so they launched it, uh, before the iPhone, <laughs> this, this is a spacecraft that was built before the iPhone existed. Um, uh, but it's, you know, it's a computer in there. So it's, it's, uh, so first off the people who run this, this uh, mission have been sitting for, um, almost 10 years, just waiting for it to get to its destination. And then literally it will blow past its destination in a, in a day, less than a day. And that's it. So delayed gratification and then boom, all of this stuff is going to happen. And that's going to happen tomorrow. So I think that's really exciting. Tuesday, July 14th is when it's going to happen. Um, and and it, it's also a story of delayed gratification in that um, during its closest approach, when it's take, just gobbling up, because it's only got this one shot at it. So it's going to be taking pictures and, and using all of its instruments to gather all this data. Um, it's going to be too, one, it's too busy doing that to send anything back to earth. And two, it's actually not going to be able to see earth for part of it because of the way it has to position itself. Its antenna won't be pointed at the earth. So, um, it's delayed gratification in the sense that, um, when this is all happening, the most exciting things, even you can't see it live, not even live delayed by 4.4 hours it takes for the transmissions to get back to earth. It's going to be too busy to talk to us. So they're not going to know until tomorrow night, um, U.S. time, whether it survived or if it hit like a piece of debris mm-hmm. and was destroyed, um, which they say is a one in ten thousand chance. But and they're flying it through the the path of one of the moons of Pluto. The idea there being it's so big that there's no debris in its path because it swept it all up. Um, so delayed gratification, and and then here's the here we get into the computery stuff. Um, it's running a twelve megahertz processor. <laughs> It's got a lot of it's got a lot of uh, solid state storage from a time when SSDs weren't common, but they built in. There's a lot of that's their storage is they've got a lot of solid state storage. So um, 
and it went into safe mode a couple weeks ago. And this is the computer part of the story: is it had a it had a computer error when they were trying to put it into um, its full exploration mode, and they had to debug it. Now, I, I just want I just want you to imagine for a minute debugging something that's uh, first off, it's a twelve megahertz uh, computer. <laughs> it's three billion miles away. Every command you send to it will take four and a half hours to reach it, and then another four and a half hours for the response to come back. Um, and the good news is that they resolved this. They figured out what it was. They analyzed what they were, what they had done. They figured out that it had gone to a, into a safe mode because they had put, I think, put the commands in in the wrong order, um, like just in the sequence because you're dealing with very low power and this very slow processor. They've got it up and running now. Um, so that's that's cool. The other thing we need to keep in mind is that I think it's a one megabit connection. No, one kilobit per connection. One kilobit per second um, from beyond Pluto. So when they've prioritized, like they've scripted the whole mission, they know all of the pictures it's taking, and then they prioritized, like that should be a good picture. That should be a good picture. And they picked this like really basic data set to be the first thing that once it points its antenna back at Earth, these are the first things that we send. Like the, the ooh-ah pictures that are going to be on every website and every, every TV channel. They're going to send those first. But it's going to collect so much data tomorrow that it's going to take, get this, the next year for it all to come back. <laughs> this little spaceship is going to continue motoring off, you know, into huh. interstellar space. And for the next year, while it, while they steer it toward, you know, they're going to probably fly by another icy object out in deep space. Um, but for the next year, it's going to just very slowly dump everything back. In, in fact, they've got a whole... Uh, script set up where like they're going to send lossy stuff first so they'll like send the jpegs they'll send things that'll have some image artifacts but they want to but they'll be smaller those will come first then they're going to send some thumbnails of everything then they'll send all the full quality ones and they, they have a whole script of what gets sent when over the course of not just weeks but months and almost a year i think of data from this one day and the, from, from this period as they've been approaching Pluto. So I think it's a really interesting tech story in addition to being a space story that uh, this is, you know, it's old tech anyway. Plus space tech is always even older because they've got to have like proven simple systems. You can't, you know, you can't send a, a mechanic out to check on the computer when it's 4 billion miles away. And then they also have to like harden all the parts against radiation. So this is a special radiation hard, hardened part. Um, so I think that's a fun story. I also think there's an interesting angle, which is to think, what will the next set of space probes, uh, be like? Because in the last 10 years, we've gotten really good at low power, um, miniaturized technology. Like mobile devices have really come on in the decades since New Horizons was being, uh, prepared for launch. And I think that's really interesting to think about, Will our our uh, knowledge in uh, how to make mobile? I mean, this is as mobile as it gets, right? <laughs> Send it out of the solar yeah. system. Uh, will will that lead? You know, not they're not going to take something off the shelf that's cutting edge today and put it in a spaceship tomorrow. It's gonna it, there'll need to be some lag time. But I would I, I would imagine if this is what this uh, this device is able to do, a twelve megahertz processor is able from that was launched ten years ago and probably designed and built fifteen years ago. If this is what this can do, can you imagine 
what some stuff that's based on the what we've learned about making devices that can use less power and that are still very powerful and very compact might mean for future stuff. So I think I just think it's a fun subject and hopefully we'll see some cool pictures from I'm happy that you've said about it because I didn't really know anything about it at all. Yeah, so tomorrow um you can pay attention to basically no news <laughs> it'll be us saying, well, it should be taking pictures now and then we wait. But, and like I said, it's all about delayed gratification that New Horizons wants you to wait. But uh, I think it's exciting. And uh, when I was reading about their computer problem that they had and seeing the old tech involved and the fact that we're talking about such a slow data link and they, they have to have um, these radio telescopes all over the planet. They're in Australia. They're in the U.S. And they're somewhere else. Um uh, maybe it's the UK. They, they they have to have this network of radio telescopes so that they're always and or, or receivers um, because they're always uh, uh, you know they want to stay in connection even as the Earth turns they need to stay in connection with the spacecraft. So it's just this incredibly hard technical problem. In addition to the the, the science that's going on with the observations, the ship itself and how we talk to it is this. It's like the solar system's hardest IT problem. So I think that's kind of fascinating too. So just before we started recording, um, the the New Horizons craft settled the size of Pluto. I don't know if yes. you saw this. Yeah, that was in the press conference this morning. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's interesting. I don't know if it means it can be a planet yet or not. I don't really understand if that's it, a possibility. Do, well, planet is not a. I mean, it's not actually a helpful. Um, a helpful fra- phrase because it's more complicated than that. I think the, I mean, the in- International Astronomical Union came up with a redefinition of, of, uh, of planets that I think nobody is particularly satisfied with. But the idea is Pluto is not like the other things we think of as planets, and it's more like these other objects um, that are icy objects at the distant reaches of the solar system. Um, and th- what precipitated the whole thing is a guy named Mike Brown. Um, who is Pluto Killer on Twitter, by the way, uh, discovered an object that is now called Eris, and um, it is uh, heavier than Pluto. And it kind of called the question. It's actually slightly smaller than Pluto, but it's more dense, so it's heavier. It's got more mass. Um, and that made everybody go, huh, okay. Now we have to, now we really have to do something. Either Eris is also a planet like Pluto is, or we need to maybe say, you know, Pluto and Eris and these other little icy things all the way out at the edge that orbit in funny orbits that are not like any of the other planets, maybe they're not the same as all of the stuff, the other eight objects we call planets. Maybe they're a different kind of thing. And, you know, whether you want to call them planets or lesser planets or minor planets or icy objects or trans-Neptunian objects, whatever you want to call them, um, they are different because because the discovery of Eris was like, all right, now we need to say. And then there's there's also a space probe around Ceres, which we've always talked of as an asteroid. It's in the asteroid belt, but it's like, it's round and big. And you could maybe argue, and I, I saw some scientist on Twitter the other day say, um, the more we look at Ceres, the more the less it looks like an asteroid. So you almost need to say it's a small planet. And what is it? It's different. It just even moves from, fast. <laughs> it's just different even from Pluto and, and, and uh, well, it's just, it's closer in and it's small. It's much smaller than, than the other, the other planets in the inner solar system. But is it an asteroid or is it a planet? It's, it's just kind of fun. But, but anyway, Mike Brown discovered Eris and that kind of made everybody question the simple sort of nine planets approach that we taught, you know, kids in school. And, um, 
you know, I, they might be giants did a, a, a fun song about uh, about this on their Here Comes Science album. And one of the one of the things that they one of the phrases they used is, you know, there's Pluto, Eris, and a bunch of other stuff out there. And it's okay to talk about the other the, all the frozen stuff that's out beyond Neptune, and that's uh, that's cool. But um, I recommend Mike Brown's book. He he has a, a book. I think it's called. Um, it's like how I killed Pluto, <laughs> um, which is uh, actually a lot of fun. About how, yeah, it's how I killed Pluto and why it had it coming. <laughs> it's a good book. About it's a about good title. It's a really yeah, great and, title. And he is he is Pluto Killer on on Twitter. So he's enjoy. I'm sure he's enjoying this too because this is his field of study: is these icy bodies out at the far reaches of the solar system. And we'll learn a lot from that uh, that uh, spaceship with the 12 megahertz processor. You know, for the last month, every picture it's taken, even as it's been approaching Pluto, has been the best picture ever taken of Pluto. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's fun. Um, just a quick question about that. That uh, the, what's it called? The the craft, the New, new uh, Horizons. New, new Horizons. Yeah. So after it goes past Pluto, is it going to be looking for anything else? Like, is it just carrying on? Or so will it um, finish. Or will it like run so, out of fuel or whatever? The well, it will. It's got a radioactive. It has some. It has some propellant. And has a radioactive uh, power source. Um, so what they plan on doing after they pass Pluto and they know that the ship is okay, what they what they're going to do is they've got. I'm not sure if they picked. They've got a couple different objects that they could head for. So they want to head for another known icy object out there in what's called the Kuiper Belt, um, and uh, and fly by it too. Um, and so that I think that's their their goal is to fly by another one of these kinds of objects, smaller than Pluto, but not very well known, you know, because they're far out. It's we don't know a lot about these objects. And the idea is that this is the stuff that's left over from the formation of the solar system. So you can learn a lot about uh, the solar system and about the formation of of the planets and the and the, and the solar system from this kind of junk that's just kind of floating around in the far reaches of the, of the solar system. And then after that, after they do whatever corrections they do to try and, and uh, go past one of those objects, then it just keeps going. Just like, um, uh, like I think Voyager 2 is the furthest away of any object that, that is man-made and is now out beyond the influence of the sun. But um, it, it just keeps going. And if it's anything like, I haven't read this, but I assume if it's anything like Voyager, they will try to keep it alive as long as they can and try to do some basic science like Voyager its whole goal was to look at planets but it's actually been really useful scientifically using some of its instruments and its draining power source to radio back faintly information about like what it's measuring as it goes further and further away from the sun they've been able to sort of like learn how far does the sun's influence go so I you know I'm hoping that that they'll do something similar with that because this is the fastest object uh that we've ever um shot out of the solar system so at some point new horizons will be the furthest away of any man-made object that's really interesting to me right because how much do we really know past pluto like i assume not a lot well i mean this stuff is smaller and it's very hard to see from earth even with the hubble space telescope um it's hard to see and it's easier to see i mean this is not a a, a floating, you know, flying telescope where it can where it can be like the Hubble te- Space Telescope, but far away. Um, its cameras are more limited than that, but it is out there, right? So that's there's an opportunity to for it to notice things about that region of space that we we have to look at from very far away. Like I said, four billion miles away, and it's you know this is why. I mean, why did Eris get discovered um, 
10 years ago or, or less than that, five years ago, eight, seven years ago, not a long time ago. Um, uh, well, no, actually, I think it was exactly 10 years ago. It got discovered then because it took that long for us to have good enough um, ground-based and space-based telescopes to, and, and computers to look at, take these pictures of the sky and notice that, oh, that little dot of light moved a little bit. <laughs> it's very hard to see from here. So um, this has been one of those kind of uh, cutting edges of astronomy because it's because it's required the technology that we have today in order to find this stuff. Like Mike Brown writes about how he, you know, he took all of these images that were taken by the telescopes in Hawaii and ran them through a computer. And it was like literally the computer is looking at you know millions of images trying to find moving objects and most of them are going to be like airplanes or satellites but that what they're trying to do is identify are there any objects out there big enough for us to find and the answer the answer was actually his answer about a year ago was no we've it seems like we probably got them all that we're capable of seeing right now well there you go frontiers frontiers of science it's kind of fun and the tech i like the tech angle i mean imagine you get we get frustrated by our computers here on earth and then they, they have to deal with this computer that, that is, is uh, four and a half hours away by radio and on a slow connection running a slow processor. And that's all they've got. They got to make it work. It's crazy stuff, man. It's I'm happy stuff. that you took the time to talk about this because I had no idea about any of this really. I mean, I know that something was happening, right? But yeah. past that, I didn't know anything. So let, should we switch off and talk about something that's just as nerdy but in a totally different direction? Yes. Comic-Con. Comic-Con. So there's been a bunch of stuff, as there is every year. Um, yeah. Disney's showing basically was Star Wars this year. No real yeah. Marvel stuff. Right. Um, and DC attempted to display uh, their expanded universe, as did Fox. Um, yes. All superhero all the time. Yeah, uh, and oh I God, wanted yes. to talk about a couple of the trailers specifically, sure. and then we could talk about whatever else you wanted to as well. So first off, I want to talk about the Dawn of Justice trailer. So this is Batman Superman. Yep. So this one came out. This is like a general frustration of mine is why don't they put the trailers all out like after they show? Well, I think they didn't they with Batman versus Superman. They did I think with they... Batman and Superman. They did with the Star Wars. But like, I want to watch the Deadpool trailer. But it's like apparently it's going to be in the next. It's going to be three weeks away. Well, they ha- they they haven't learned the lesson that that uh, the people who did the Star Wars. I, I this year I felt like some um, some companies really got it. Like there was some stuff that was posted as soon as it was shown, and the panels were posted. And they're like, we're just going to put it out there, rather than have it be some sort of shaky cam version of this thing. We're just going to put it out there. And then other companies haven't learned the lesson yet. Nope. So yeah, I think it'll happen. I think eventually everybody will realize you, first you show it at Comic-Con and then you show it to the whole world immediately after. You don't say, no, no, no. You see it see it in three weeks. Until then, just watch this uh, handheld you know, cell phone camera version of it. That's stupid. So I want to talk, let's talk about Dawn of Justice. So basically the conceit of the trailer is uh, peop- everybody's upset at Superman for what he did to Metropolis. Yeah, at the end of Man of Steel. Yeah, so like so it's he, trying trying to take the the gigantic mistake of the previous movie and make it a plot point. That's clever. So you know you have spoken about this uh, at length on episode one hundred and forty six of The Incomparable, which I'll put in mm-hmm. today's show notes, which I think that people should listen to in case they haven't already. Um, that's in there, so that's where to discuss Man of Steel. Uh, 
and I agreed with everybody on the panel basically that it was too much destruction, too many people killed um, potentially, and it was all ridiculous. And I have other long-running problems with Superman as a character yeah. anyway um, that don't work in 2015, like the fact that the disguise wouldn't work because everyone will see pictures of his face. Like it's just yeah. the, the, the Clark Kent disguise is pointless yeah. now. Um, the, the, was, the short version, the short version is that that Man of Steel felt a little too cavalier with the destruction of of uh, city city blocks, and that Superman didn't appear to really care that or or attempt to move the destruction elsewhere, and that that seemed very unheroic. And plus, the fight isn't very interesting because they're both invulnerable, so they're destroying buildings, but they're they have no they don't actually hurt each other to speak of because they're super powerful all powerful beings so in this in this trailer we see batman we see bruce wayne um witnessing this destruction and, the, and apparently the idea is that there are a lot of people on on earth who feel like feel like i do about the end of, end of steel and have a problem with superman and uh and and you know batman's not gonna i guess not gonna take it anymore or something before so we talk fight? about any more of the details of the trailer, because I did want to talk about a few more, I have a question for you. Uh-huh. Do you think that the citywide destruction in Man of Steel was portrayed the way it was for this movie to exist and have a plot, or do you think it is a reaction after the fact? I think it's a reaction after the fact. I've heard from some fans who who basically are trying to say, see, the reason it happens that way in Man of Steel is so they could do this movie. Well, um, I think I've seen some statements from the filmmakers to the contrary, but I'll I'll just say if they if they ended that movie the way they did because they thought this is going to make a great sequel, they are really stupid <laughs> because the last thing you need to do is wreck your movie and make people hate it because you've got a really great sequel idea because first off you need to make a good movie or there won't be a sequel and you, or you won't be asked to make it. So I don't, I don't believe that this is all part of some great plan um, that people would, (laughs) that, that, that you would undermine Superman to this degree. So I think it's a reaction. I think that that actually fed into this as people were, people were kind of appalled by um, the ending of the movie. And they said, Oh, that's actually an interesting way into this story to have people, like like Lex Luthor and Batman, as it turns out, uh, be appalled by what happened in the movie. But if that was the plan all along, I think that they're guilty of some serious malpractice because it wrecked, you know, it wrecked the movie for me. So it's like, hey, we're going to make you really angry at this movie so we can make another movie. Okay. My feeling would be if that was going to be what they did, then they should have had a hint to Batman at the end of the movie. Like, if that was the decision that they made, then Bruce Wayne should have been at the end of the movie. There were no consequences at the end of the movie. At the end of the movie of Man of Steel, if if it was very clear that this thing that this fight that happened was horrible and that that, uh, you know, Superman was um, was kind of uh, morally, um, I don't know, uh, just questionable at this point that that people were wondering that I think I think that would have been an interesting way to end it but boy that would be a really that would be an even more dark way to end that movie so i don't know Uh, it's a it's a complicated topic we talked about a lot on that incomparable episode so you know you can go there for it my question with this movie is um i 
is I find it problem problematic when I watch the trailer that I agree with Batman and Lex Luthor about Superman. Like I agree with them that he's a he's a menace who, who could destroy everything, and he's shown no evidence that he um, is on our side and that he cares about human life. And the fact that in the trailer his mother says, "You don't own these you, you don't owe these people anything." I'm like, oh man. And I also know yeah, that why Superman. is that bad though? Like. You've got to pick a side. So maybe they're setting it up, especially in this trailer, to make you pick Batman's yeah. side. Yeah. Well, the, the, why it's bad is that Superman is incredibly valuable. And um, so in the end, they're going to learn that it's Lex Luthor who's the true enemy. And they're going to form the Justice League with Wonder Woman and Aquaman. And everybody's going to be happy. And my question is, I'm, is can this, movie, can this movie do enough to redeem that character after the disaster that I feel was the end of man of steel. And that would be, that would be quite impressive if it does that. I'll, I'll put it that way. I would be very impressed if in the end, this was about bringing Superman low and having him realize the error of his ways and that he, he now needs to start acting like a true hero and care for people. And if that's his, if that's his character arc, that would be a bold move for a character that is generally portrayed as being just a Mr. Friendly, sunshine, happy superhero guy. But they could do it. That would be fascinating if Batman teaches Superman what it means to actually be a hero. I have my suspicions that that's not going to be how it goes. So I have a couple of other questions about this trailer that I'm hoping you might be able to help clean up for me. Um, the first is, is this Batman's origin story? It seems not, but it seems like they're making some weird crosses because you know yeah. he picks up the paper and it's like Wayne family dies because one of the buildings that they destroy is a Wayne building. Um, yeah. But but there seems like to be calls to the fact that this is Batman returning to action. Right. I think that's what it is. I think this is... I think that Batman has already existed, um, but that this is a the impetus for either Batman to return or for him to change his approach from what he was doing before and think... You know, think more glo- globally, maybe, or maybe you know, beyond just being a protector of Gotham or something like that. But I agree, you can almost look at it like this is the origin of Batman. He becomes Batman because he's so outraged. I, I don't think the timeline works for that. No. Um, I don't think it makes makes any sense that he would be a new Ben Affleck would decide to be new Batman at this point. So it's got to be more complicated than that. But I think the trailer sort of simplifies it to make you feel like no, no, no. This is the this is when we meet Batman. It's important that you meet him now. Yeah, because there are some parts of the trailer which show that Batman has already existed. Like, you know when he... And, uh, you've, you've, I'm sure you've seen the trailer. I don't know how much you've studied it or looked up about it because I've been a bit fascinated by it. You know when he looks at that suit and it's got the yellow spray paint on it in the trailer? I don't know if you remember yeah. it. That is Robin's suit. And it's yeah. the, it's what uh, the Joker writes on. Uh, is it is it Jason Todd? I uh, you you're you're beyond my I I only uh, occasionally I only go to the Church of Batman for Easter. Okay, so well, one of the Robins was caught by Batman, and <laughs> yeah, it was, what, was right. caught by the Joker and by the Joker. Yeah, and so it basically the the suit is up in this case, and it's got the Joker's right. writing on it, and it's clearly so he's, it's Robin's suit. So so he's a messed up, you know, maybe retired or semi-retired Batman who comes yep. back into action because of all the crap that has gone on with Superman and Zod destroying cities and stuff. There's also one other point which is weird. I don't know if you've got an answer, but I wanted to mention it anyway because it seems really weird to me. There's like Batman is getting beaten up by a bunch of people. Those people mm-hmm. have Superman's logos on their arms, like they're Superman's army, right. 
which again, I don't know what that means. <laughs> like, there's so many questions. So my my guess is that they're not going to portray their most important piece of intellectual property as a fascist, and that it's going to be that Superman's name and likeness and logo are used un- unauthorized use by people who f- fancy themselves vigilantes in the name. I, I, that's my guess of about what that means. Is that is that the meaning of Superman kind of is out of Superman's control and starts to represent a whole bunch of things that he um he doesn't want it to. And then my guess based on the first half of Man of Steel, which I actually liked a lot, is that this this allows um Henry Cavill to be sort of mopey disaffected um Clark Kent, which I actually really like the fact that he is he is alien like literally alienated from humanity. He's not human. And that after all of these bad experiences, maybe he's like, I don't even want to be involved. And then his story arc maybe is that he realizes he can't not be involved because he's made such an imprint on society that if he doesn't take control of it, other people will use his name to do things he doesn't agree with. That 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 that's what I re- I read into the you know fighters with the Superman logo is that they're not authorized. Those are not authorized merchandise uh, jackets, is what I'm saying. Interesting. <laughs> I'm excited about this movie, having seen this trailer. Um, I I like the idea of angry Batman, uh, like really angry Batman, uh, coming like coming out of retirement to mm-hmm. punch Superman in the face. You know, <laughs> I kind of yeah. like that because I've never really liked Superman, Jason. No, I I agree. I agree. I've never really liked Superman. I mean, I love Superman's Batman. fine. He's just he's boring. Batman is much more interesting. Superman is great. He's apple pie and la la la. But. Um, I agree with you. I didn't like the teaser trailer. I thought it was more of the same from Zack yeah. Snyder and I was yep. just like writing it off like uh, this is a total disaster. I looked at this one and said, you know what? I'm not inclined to go see it, but I'm more interested in it than I was before I saw the trailer because of that at least hint that maybe they will, they will, you know, may- <laughs> just to back up and think about the, the corporate politics here. Superman's always been perceived as number one, but I got to say, I think Batman is number one. Batman is more liked and more relevant in in modern movies and in modern culture than Superman is. Superman's sort of like Grandpa's superhero, and Batman is is uh, is uh, the superhero of the last twenty years, certainly from from DC. And so that would be really interesting if this whole movie is about Batman punching Superman in the face and saying, "You screwed up," and you you know you need to hear what we have to say about this. Um, that would be really interesting. Like I said, I would love to see a movie where Superman is brought low and realizes that he's really blown it and that he needs to um, he needs to make amends. That w- and that that's where the Justice League comes from. That would be interesting. I'm not sure I've got any confidence in Zack Snyder to pull that off, but that would be a really interesting uh, story and that would make Superman way more interesting. And also, I think wouldn't that be interesting for Batman to like have him be the guy who is the adult supervision who's like you know shape up Sonny <laughs> that would be cool yeah and just to be like because it's a retired Batman it's like let me teach you yeah the things that you need to know if you're going to try and do this yeah like, and then yeah. also Wonder Woman is in it because reasons um uh, thank you Joe Steele for <laughs> pointing that out she yeah. Wonder Woman and apparently Aquaman um Jason Momoa, who you might remember as uh, as uh, Khal Drogo from Game of Thrones, is I believe he's Aquaman. I think so. He yep. may show up at some point too. Makes sense to have them all in it. I think just to solidify the well, Justice League movie. This 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 is the movie where DC 
this is like their Iron Man. This yeah, is the movie is where they say, on, we, right? we are yeah. now a shared universe as of this movie. It turns out that, yes, Man of Steel was part of it, but like this is the moment where they're like, here's our plan. We're going to have a lot of movies. This is where it starts. You start to meet these characters. So, you know, I wish them luck. I mean, I, I, I wish them luck. I, I think I think uh, Man of Steel is a terrible foundation to build on, but um, they can. you can always, you know... <laughs> you're only as successful as your latest movie, right? So if Batman versus Superman um, does the trick, then then they'll be off and running. My hope will be, and that they've realized that the foundation is this movie, you know, that then that's yeah. why they're putting everyone in it. They want this one to be the remembered one. Yeah. The last thing that I wanted to mention on this, Jason, was what do you think about the idea of a Ben Affleck directed solo Batman movie? That was, the, that was the, the rumor. thing they're going to do. I have no opposition to that. I think I think that's I think Ben Affleck is actually a, a talented guy, and and uh, I think that would be an interesting idea to uh, that might be that might be DC's actual Iron Man, right? Their actual like, let's take somebody who's got a little bit more of a vision for this character and uh, have them do a movie. I would love I would love to see that. I would love to see a different take on Batman that is not Christopher Nolan's Batman that we've seen for the last ten years. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Ben Affleck. Um, and especially if he's directing work. So I'm very excited about that, yeah. personally. Uh, what did you think of the Star Wars stuff? It wasn't a trailer, but just wasn't like a, a, trailer. a reel of things. Yeah, it was like to get the fans hyped up. I thought it was good for that. I, I think, um, you know, it wasn't a trailer. We had a bunch of people ask, is The Incomparable going to do five hours about this video? And the answer is, we're not going to do anything about it because it's not a trailer. It's a, it's a it's like a behind-the-scenes reel. It's like a DVD extra kind of thing. And I think it's interesting. It gave away some some new character names and some uh, settings and some other hints about what we're going to see um, in the new Star Wars movie. And I thought that was I thought that was a perfectly appropriate thing to, to drop at Comic-Con. Um, I'll also point out, and some people were pointing this out last week, that Disney's got a lot of events. They had the Star Wars, um, the big Star Wars event in Orange County earlier this year, and then they've got the big Disney Expo that they do. Um, so Disney's got kind of some of its own events where it wants to make news. So I feel like maybe this was a good use of Comic-Con. It's not yeah. dropping the full trailer, but it's still doing something for the fans, Get keeping the hype building. They had... They had uh, um, the three principal actors from the original trilogy on stage at Comic-Con, which was, that's a big deal that it wasn't just Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, but Harrison Ford was there too. Um, I'm not sure he's made public appearances since he got in his uh, plane crash on that golf course. So, um, so I, yeah, I, that was, I forgot and, about that. yeah. And he doesn't like, uh, you know, he's rumored to be very, you know, testy about, uh, you know, appearing with fans and star Wars stuff and all of that, but he was there too. So, and he seemed to have so, fun. Yeah. Like, you know. yeah. So, so I think I think it was good, but in terms of um, judging how the movie's going to be, it didn't didn't really tell us anything. It was just sort of like little tidbits for the fans, which is fine. That's a great use of Comic Con. Um, I, I a couple of things that I liked from the the reel. Um, they were talking about practical effects a lot, and they showed some of that, and they showed some models, which looked really cool. Um, and it's nice to see that sort of stuff there, yeah. right? Because it shows that JJ is embracing what people want. Um, even whether he wants it or not, which I'm sure he does, but you know he's he's trying to give people what they want. Yeah, no, he um, he wants he wants it to. He I think the way to phrase it is J.J. Abrams is embracing the what the what the fans of the original trilogy want, which is fine because he's one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's so he gets it. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also Simon Pegg, which is just funny that he's in it. Uh, he's in, in it a, in, in a an costume. alien costume. <laughs> yeah. I really hope. I really hope that you just never would know it's him. And he's oh, yeah. I, just I, because he wants to. 
I assume that's what it is. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely assume that's what it is. Um, and I um, would expect that he yeah. would probably be the first in a long line of people that are doing something like that in this True. movie, you know, that know JJ. So I think that's really cool. And I liked it. Um, was there anything else uh, from Comic-Con uh, specifically that you wanted to mention that, no, that, that I caught mean, your eye? I think I think it's worth mentioning, you know, the other superhero stuff. There's another DC movie. They had the Suicide Squad um, on stage. I saw like a shaky cam over the shoulder yeah. version of that. And I, lo- I thought it looked pretty cool. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see when the real official version comes out. And then Fox had their... Uh, Marvel wasn't there, but Fox had their stuff that they own of Marvel's there. So they were talking about the new X-Men movie, which follows on uh, from Days of Future Past. So I still the, haven't seen that yet. It's pretty good. Um, it, it's, you know, it's, well, it, it's pretty good for an X-Men movie. Oh, burn. But that's that's <laughs> sort of how I, I take that. It's a, it's a fun combination of the old cast and the new cast. Um, and this Apocalypse, I think, is similarly kind of a mix-up of old and new um, and then uh, they also showed some stuff from their Deadpool movie, which I have zero interest in because I don't like Deadpool. But uh, it's it, what's interesting about it is it's a, an R-rated movie, so it's going to be super violent and raunchy and stuff, which I think, you know what? I think that's interesting to do a superhero movie that's got, that breaks some of the rules that have been established for superhero movies. So Suicide you know. Squad uh, also looks very uh, risky. Yeah. It, it it does. I, I suspect it will be right on the edge of PG thirteen and not verge over into R. Whereas I, Deadpool, I don't know. Like yeah, th- just the trailer that I'd seen, it looked a little uh, little much. I would be surprised. I mean, I don't know well, what the classifications are, but it, it looked way further than I've seen any other uh, yeah. superhero oh, movie go. I'm sure they're going to push it, but I, I I'm skeptical. But we'll we'll see. But Deadpool, they're just going for the R, so it's going to be gory and. Uh, and uh, profane and like they're gonna they're gonna amp it up all the way um there were some teases of the the dc tv stuff which i think is the, that's the dc Comics stuff that i really love is the flash and arrow and they've got a new spinoff coming and they're also doing a supergirl show the same producers um there was some zombie news there's a walking dead spinoff called fear the walking dead which is yeah. sort of the Walking Dead, which I read as a comic too, um, it's clever in how it starts out because, especially since they didn't have the budget, it starts out as the guy wakes up, Rick wakes up in the hospital. He's, he gets shot and he's in a coma and then he wakes up and there's nobody around and the apocalypse has already happened. So now they're now that The Walking Dead is like one of the most successful shows on TV, not just cable TV, on television in, in total, um, they have the budget to do Fear the Walking Dead, which is set in L.A., and tells the story of the zombie apocalypse hitting L.A., which is, um, that's that's a very interesting thing. That's a very interesting choice. Um, I'm more so interested it, it, in this than The Current Walking Dead because I read the comic, and The Walking Dead comic, in my opinion, is miles better than the TV show. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think the TV show is fine, but the yeah. comic is 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 great. I think this will be interesting. It's like the lessons learned from doing the other show and the fact that they can wind the clock back and and tell that which is, you know, the the fun story as a zombie, you know, telling a zombie story of how how civilization crumbles and seeing it all. Um and uh, you know, it, it that that should be that should be interesting. And then the other zombie show that was uh, shown at Comic-Con is Ash versus Evil Dead, which is coming to stars, I think. Um, and and to, you talk about your R-rated uh, uh, 
uh, movies. This is the R-rated TV show, essentially. Um, but uh, it's the uh, it's a TV show sequel to the Evil Dead movies with starring Bruce Campbell. So if you like your gory, you know, gory zombie movies in the style of the Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, Evil Dead, Ar- Army of Darkness kind of uh, films, there's going to be a show of it. <laughs> that looked pretty funny and, and super violent and gory, but also really funny, which is, I think, what you would expect from that. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention is two of my favorite comic books from my childhood, the Micronauts and ROM, are were teased from IDW Publishing. And uh, I had long conversations with comic book people on Twitter about this because those are toys that became comics. And the challenge there is that the toy intellectual property and the comic book storylines are uh, owned by different people. <laughs> so... The things that we remember nostalgically from those properties are problematic because Marvel Comics owns, like with the Micronauts, the toys and the look of the toys are owned by the toy company, which can, you know, and the holding company for the intellectual property. So they can be licensed. But all of the other stuff that went into that universe that was created just for the comic book is still owned by Marvel. And so um, this happened once before where they tried to do a new Micronauts comic book, but all they could use were the images of the toys. And so they had to create new characters and new settings. And um, it was weird and not really ideal because it it kind of blows off the nostalgia factor. You can't even start from a nostalgic place and then tell new stories because you don't own half of the nostalgia. And the ROM Space Knight thing is even worse because that was literally just a plastic toy of a robot called ROM Space Knight. And that was from Mattel or Parker Brothers. And he had three different guns that he could use. He had like a scanner and a neutralizer and something else and a translator. Um, Everything else that people remember, because the toy came and went in a year, but the comic lasted for like five or six years. Everything everybody uh, is fond of that character comes from the comics. So if IDW Publishing only has the rights to the toy... They can create a comic based on that toy, but they can't use any of the other stuff that anybody that everybody remembers. The supporting cast, the villain. <laughs> it's just it, it the 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 human version of the robot guy can't not owned by them. So uh, Moises Chuyan tells me to be patient, and that it's possible that IDW is actually also trying to license stuff from Marvel Comics. Uh, they've worked with them on stuff in the past that there might actually be more to this story that they're, that IDW as a publisher says, look, if Marvel doesn't want to buy this stuff, maybe we'll buy it and we'll license stuff from Marvel and then we'll put it together. But it's just a funny, this is one of those examples of a beloved thing from my childhood that is out of print and can't be brought back into print because the rights have kind of torn apart and expired. So, um, but there was a tease and all it said was 2016, Micronauts, ROM, uh, IDW Publishing. So we'll see whether they dash my hopes. Um, I, I'd hope Marvel would pick up the license because then they own everything and they could tell, they could use those old comics as a starting point. But you know, we'll we'll see. I'm going to listen to Moises and and remain open minded about it. And uh, yeah, and all the Doctor Who people were in San Diego too, which I am always amused to see English people running around San Diego because there's a lot of ah the sun the sun but uh they they just announced the air date and showed a little trailer for the new season of doctor who but i just i do enjoy that because a lot of times you get these you get these british actors who have never been to something on the scale of comic con and they're kind of amazed that you know how is it that all these thousands of americans are excited about our our tv show because they when they're in cardiff making doctor who you know they they there are some fans around but you know, it's nothing like the scale of going to Comic-Con. So I, I always, I enjoy that more than the actual panels sometimes is just these people who have never been exposed to how insane um, 
comic-con is and 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 that's you that's usually the british actors <laughs> uh also sherlock yeah they, they, uh, they, they showed a the teaser trailer for the they did. uh for the christmas special christmas of sherlock special. which yeah. which is not part of the modern sherlock but it's the same actors but they're in the you know whatever it is victorian the 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 classic sherlock holmes era yeah. for the christmas special um, I have unpopular things to say about that trailer, which is it looked to me like a, a like a Saturday Night Live sketch, and I thought it was painful, and I fear that it will be a terrible thing. But you know, I couldn't disagree with you more I think, on that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I, it just hit me wrong. I, I, it hit me as a whole series of jokes that are like, "See, we're back in the past now," ah, you know, and it just it didn't I, it didn't hit me right at all. So, but I, I will, you know, I'll watch it. I'm, I like Sherlock. Well, I'm I'm sad that you didn't like it. Yeah, it's okay, it's okay, but I didn't. <laughs> I thought it was too much. I thought I I worry that Sherlock is 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 getting a little too smug with its success, um, and uh, that that trailer didn't didn't uh, convince me otherwise. But you know, again, I like the show so much that I'm going to watch it regardless, and I hope it's good. Cool. Should we uh, just do a couple of ask upgrades before yeah. we sign off today? Let's do it. Jason, could you please tell me uh, who is bringing Ask Upgrade to us this week? Ask Ask Upgrade, Mike. Uh, brought to you by <laughs> our good friends at Stamps.com. Getting your mailing and shipping done as a small business, it can seem like a no-win situation. You go to the post office. I hate going to the post office. There are people there. I have to wait in line. It takes up time. Um, if you are uh, thinking of leasing a postage meter, you can do that, but it's expensive. You often have to make multi-year commitments. There are lots of hidden fees. Or you can take a third path away from the post office away from the postage meter and that is to use stamps.com with stamps.com you buy and print official u.s postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer and stamps.com is better and easier to use than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost you can save up to 80 percent with stamps.com compared to a postage meter and you will avoid dealing with those humans in the line at the post office which you can't even put a price on that stamps.com costs nine or $15.99 a month. That's it. You're, there's no long-term multi-year commitment like a postage meter. There are no markups on postage. You'll even get some special postage discounts with stamps.com. So it's really a no-brainer. I've been using stamps.com to mail various boxes and things to uh, to, uh, to Dan Morin across the country and to some other people around. Um, couldn't be easier. Um, use their little postal USB postal scale to weigh my little box, print out something on my printer, stick it on, Put it outside or walk it down to the post office and just leave it in the parcel drop and not get in line. Either one of those things works. They whisk the packages away and they reach their destination. And I can go on being a misanthrope and live and just staying in my house. Um, so right now there's a special offer for stamps.com. Use promo code UPGRADE. You'll get a no-risk trial. There's a $110 bonus offer, including a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in upgrade. That's stamps.com. Enter upgrade. Thank you so much to stamps.com for supporting this show, all of Relay FM, and hashtag AskUpgrade. Martin asks, uh, and he asks me this question, I think Martin is very angry, uh, if Zane Lowe is so great, how come he talks over the records or tracks and isn't he meant to be in the Peel mold? Uh, mold. Um, the talking over the tracks is a style that Zane implements. Um, I quite like it. I think I mentioned this last week. I like that style. 
Uh, he doesn't ruin the songs, but every now and then he'll mention something if he's excited about a song or he wants you to listen to a specific part. And that reminds me of what it's like to listen to music with a friend. Um, when you're listening to something like, oh, listen to this bit, this is really good. That's kind of what Zane Lowe reminds me of, and it is that infectious excitement that I like about him. And I think when he's talking about the Peel mold, he's talking about John Peel and how great John Peel was at discovering music, which Zane Lowe still is. Like, it's he just... he his presenting style is different um and as i said last week i think i really or maybe it was either last week or week four i really love zane's style of just being super pumped up and excited all the time because it makes me excited about the music he's excited about so i don't think that it doesn't mean he's great i think it just means he has a a, a different style that he implements and if you don't so, like it that's fine just listen to the playlists so when when i um when i, me- I mentioned this last week and I, I mentioned it at the beginning of this show too um when I say that listening to a Beats One show is an entertainment program and it's not just sort of you're playing a song and then playing another song, this is part of what I mean, which is if you're there to appreciate the music and the DJs are supposed to get out of the way, this is not for you. You should just listen to the playlists because they play those songs and there are no, no DJs. Um, and that's sort of how I came to terms with this because I've never liked it when DJs talk over songs. It's like, what's it about you or the song? And the answer is, it's about them. <laughs> that is the answer. And if it's never about them to you and it's about the song, don't listen to this because that's not what it is. Like when, because we were talking about uh, last week about, uh, about uh, oh, who's the DJ in London? Um, Julie, Julie Adenuga. Adenuga. Uh, when we listened to her show last week, um, that was, you know, the music was coming and going and she was talking and it was like you can either say she is getting in the way of the music, or you can say this is this is about experiencing this uh, entertainment with with her as our guide, and she's talking to us throughout it. And if you if you are into that, then this is the show for you. But again, if you if you want them out of the way, this 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 is not what that's not the purpose here. It's just not the purpose of those kinds of shows. Um, I don't love DJs talking over music. Um, that comes from my history as being one of those people, like John Syracuse has said, one of those people who pressed record on the radio to get a version of the song that you liked when it, when it got played on the radio back when I was a kid. But once I came to accept that this is just not what these shows are, then I, I kind of made my peace with it. It's like, I'm not here for the unbroken, pristine version of these songs. I'm here for this experience with this person. Adam asked, um, was about to take a trip home from a nearby city and Apple Music recommended a playlist called Take a Chill Drive. Is that a coincidence? Uh, I'm going to say yeah. However, <laughs> yesterday uh, when I start, I was about to start cooking and I was given two different playlists with cooking themes. I mean, I'm assuming it's just guessing time of day, right? Mm. And it's just throwing up stuff that it thinks might be a thing. But I found it very, uh, very peculiar that it's that it seems to be <laughs> Apple Music knows what I'm doing and is suggesting music specifically. But hey, very interesting. I, I mean, I don't know, but there all right. Go. I have a um, I I found they had a uh, what family game night playlist that was surfaced for me that I saved because we do have a family game night and I thought that was really fun that they had a little playlist for for. Uh, family for family game night so i saved it and we will when we next have uh family game night we will uh we'll play that playlist yep it's awesome and 
lastly, uh, at C Gomez on Twitter, what is the consensus of securing individual apps with Touch ID if your phone itself locks using it at a reasonable interval? For some reason, I read this and was like, oh yeah, that is weird. Like, like just immediately when I, when I heard it, I was like, that is strange. Like, I have, like, a bunch of apps and I choose to turn on Touch ID, but I have my phone lock after, like, two minutes. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, a crazy amount of time. Um, however, there are a couple of apps that I have on my phone that if I gave somebody my phone to look at, I wouldn't want them opening. Um, right. And those are the ones... Like, you know, it seems to be that there is an overlap between those kinds of apps and the apps that also have Touch ID or password support. Like, uh, we use FreshBooks. I don't want people going in there. Uh, Day one, One, I don't want people going in there, you know, et cetera. One password. Yeah, being the biggest one. I don't want people going Uh in there. So there is is an element of it, but it is funny that, like, um, you know, you you, have whole phone locks, but yet you still have individual locks with the same uh, password, effectively Uh your thumbprint. Uh, in different apps, it's you know, it's just it was just an interesting thing that when I read it, I was like, I'd never considered that before. But there's a special class of apps that that, right? I think all apps expect that you're going to decide whether you want to lock your phone or not. Yeah, and and like they don't need special security, most of them, because they know that you're just going to do a system level set of security settings, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are those apps that are like, you know, we need more security than that. We demand we we're not content with if the phone's unlocked, you can get to this stuff. And they put a password in in front of it. And then the nice thing is you can put Touch ID in front of it instead. And that makes it easier. Um, but I think that's the rationale is that there's some stuff that, yeah, if you if you unlock a, a phone and show something to a friend that they're not going to take it and open up your open up your passwords. Or you can leave your phone unlocked and only those things will be locked. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting, it's an extra layer of security, but it, as you say, for the, for the apps that do it, they're the ones that you want it for, really. So, yeah. makes sense. Right, so uh, that's it for this week's episode. If you want to find our show notes, you can go online and find them at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 45. Thanks again to our sponsors this week, the great people at the New Mexico Tea Company, Squarespace, and Stamps.com. If you want to find us online, you can find Jason at sixcolors.com, and he is also at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L on Twitter, and I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. And we'll be back next time. Thanks so much for listening. Say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, Jason Snell.